Hebrews Bible Study, number 11, the third exhortation, part 3, for lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from Hebrews chapter 6, verses 9 through 12. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. While various translators have split this passage into two distinct pericopes, chapter 5, verse 11, to chapter 6, verse 20. This misses the law and gospel dynamic employed by the author to spiritually edify the Hebrew congregation, to separate both halves of the passage and look at each in isolation, is to miss the dynamic message intended by the writer, especially in terms of the chiastic structure. Nonetheless, one of the reasons for the artificial split in the passage by translators and publishers is that the message of law, which the author proclaims, is an extremely hard one which has befuddled exegetes for centuries. Luther famously called Hebrews 6 verse 4 a hard knot because of the difficult implications presented by the text. Here we will carefully examine the meaning of the sections of this passage week by week, continuing today with Hebrews chapter 6 verses 9 through 12 and tying them all together. It is noted that last week we did not go through and explain Hebrews chapter 6 verses 7 and 8. That is because of their great importance to the subsequent verses this week has in terms of soteriology, and they will be explored in connection to today's passage. They read, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it, and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated, receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. I have here on the PDF that you can find at verylutheran.biz a highlighting key and a restructured writing of our passage, Hebrews 6 verses 9 through 12. I highly encourage people listening online to take a look at it so they can see a little bit of what I'm getting at. But with that out of the way, we can now re-read starting in verse 9 and go forward verse by verse. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. It is evident by the use of contrasting words in verse 9 that the entirety of Hebrews 5 verse 11 through 6 20 is best understood as a small law and gospel homily. The author had just finished explaining to the congregation that their spiritual stagnation was comparable to residing in a building with nothing but a foundation, leaving them exposed to the elements and other sources of harm. If they continued, then the possibility is opened up to apostatize and thus be lost forever 
like a crop of thorns and thistles destined to be burned. But then he shifts tone, going from a proclamation of law to a section of gospel. Though we speak this way, that is harshly and in terms of law, yet he is persuaded that the congregation nonetheless has advantages which contribute to an assurance of salvation. The first commandment forbids any apostasy of any kind, and the author spoke first in this way to warn and convict, but now he intends to build them up, presenting evidence of their salvation. Verse 10, For God is not unjust, so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. To explain what persuaded the author that the Hebrew church possessed good things which point to their salvation, he appeals to God's justice. God would be unjust to overlook the things which would be in favor of the congregation. These are namely their continued devotion to God through their service rendered to the saints. Does this mean that works are taken into consideration in matters of salvation? Sort of. Certainly not in the sense that one ought to trust their works to earn them merit before God. The author had already explained in verse 7, Land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. The good works to which he points are a fruit of faith as a crop that they have suggesting that they are not the thorn-bearing, blighted land which would be destroyed. So works being done through the believer can be a reassurance of their salvation. Some may take the land and crop analogy too far, though, suggesting that no one does any sort of good work on their own accord, ever. We must necessarily reject this passive and feminine theological disposition reflexively, as the author says, your work and the love that you have shown, not the work done through you and the love that is shown through you. If the believer is held responsible for their sins, but is not held responsible for the good they do, then the Christian faith becomes a matter of hoping that one's will and thus much of their personhood, is taken away for the sake of not being damned, a desire to stop being aware of yourself. The field analogy is accurate. Indeed, God deserves all credit for the good works which we do as a fruit of faith. Yet the author also does not lie when he says that your work and love are just that, yours. Perhaps it is good to say that one may be encouraged in the works which the Holy Spirit inspires and enables the believer to do with their newly freed, however weak, will. Verse 11, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Now, is the presence of good works in a believer the only thing which ought to encourage them? Heaven forbid. The failures which we all have as believers would mean that any assurance we gain from our good works will be tainted, incomplete. For every good work you do which might contribute to your reassurance, you have at least one sin which detracts from it. 
Besides, civic good works may also be observed in non-believers as well. So the author here does not permit this to be the only vector for discerning whether one is saved. Instead, he expresses a desire for the congregation to have an earnest or diligent orientation to possess a full assurance. This is not a goal to work toward by one's own efforts, by the way. To say that one seeks to earn full assurance is to admit that one will never have it because of the imperfection of our works. But what is full assurance? The word employed is pleroforion. It means a full carrying out or convincing or coming to bear of a matter, that one's mind may be made up. It is to have unwavering faith in one's salvation, having no uncertainty. This cannot be done by observation of so-called fruits. Otherwise, the author would write only of a partial assurance, as he just finished criticizing the congregation's stagnation, their imperfect fruits. Instead, if there remains a pleroforion which one may have, then it is wrapped up in Christ who died for sinners. Much in the same way, the author has expressed that Christ is the Sabbath rest which remains for the people of God. This is why we rejoice in baptism, the Lord's Supper, and in the Gospel, because nothing is a maybe with these means of grace by which God saves. With him there is full assurance of hope which we may possess until the end. The author does not confuse law and gospel here, as he is not actually telling us to do something, but instead encouraging us with the fruits of our faith and even better, the invitation to be completely convinced of our eternal life in Christ. Verse 12, So that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Finally, the author makes two things very clear. The pleroforion, full assurance, which solidifies one's understanding that they are not blighted land, is the very thing which stops spiritual stagnation. Everything the author warned the congregation about in the sections of law is stopped, not by the warnings and condemnations of rote commandment, but in the motivation given by being certain of the faith. One will not be sluggish if he truly knows God put him on track to go to heaven. This is a key point to understand, that the new obedience is the principal way by which one is motivated and energized to go deeper into the faith, to grow in observance of God's commandments, and to stay faithful in times of trial. We do not do good works or grow in order to be Christians, but rather we do these things because we are Christians. The author also hopes for the congregation to be imitators of the saints, those who have inherited the promises, something which he will discuss further in chapter 11. But the subject matter of chapter 11, that of faith, is foreshadowed here by the reference to faith and patience as our way of life, but especially in the causative use of faith as a means of inheriting God's promises. The saints which we are to imitate did not earn the promises being fulfilled, 
If that were the case, they would not be promises, but wages. Promises were given unilaterally, and to inherit them is to receive them by faith. But this is a discussion to have down the line when approaching the 11th chapter. Until then, let it suffice that believers do a disservice to our Lord in declining to learn from or respect the saints of old. Certainly, given the first century dating, the author of Hebrews was thinking of Old Testament saints, but this does not discount the various people we call saint in church history. It can be quite beneficial to pay homage to and imitate the heroic faith and patience of the martyrs and church fathers and other heroes we know of. And we disobey this verse's exhortation if we see our churches as existing in a vacuum. Even so, we also would be violating it if we did more than imitate and learn from their examples, going so far as to engage in unscriptural forms of veneration and adulation. Next week, we will look at the first two examples that the author offers up for our benefit in seeing a healthy way to learn this practice. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.